the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. We're continuing our look at the humiliation and the exaltation of Christ out of Luke 22, next on Abounding Grace with Pastor Gary Wagner. For the Christian, they go hand in hand. They're not opposed to one another. In fact, they complement one another. One does not exist without the other, humiliation and exaltation. And the ultimate example of this is found in the cross. Hi there, and welcome. This is Abounding Grace with Pastor Gary Wagner from Reformed Heritage Church in San Jose. We're continuing with our survey of Luke today. Chapter 22 is where we find ourselves focusing in on verses 21 through 38. The humiliation and exaltation of Christ. There is real encouragement here because there are times we find ourselves in humiliation, but it is for good reason because with it comes the exaltation of Christ. There's a marvelous example here in the end of Luke. Join us for today's broadcast of Abounding Grace, Pastor Gary Wagner. The humiliation and exaltation of Christ, part two. I trust you remember we began looking last week at the four conversations Jesus had with the apostles in the upper room the Thursday night before his crucifixion on Friday. Many things went on in that upper room, and we need to read all of the Gospels so that we can see every detail that took place that last Thursday night of Jesus' life on earth. There is much to learn from the conversations and the actions that took place in that upper room. And last week, we looked at verses 21 through 23, where Jesus prophesied that someone who would dip bread in the bowl of fruit mixture with him would betray him that very evening. In verses 24 through 31, we read about a quarrel among the apostles as to who's going to be the greatest and then how Christ resolves that argument. Then in verses 32 through 34, we see Jesus warning to Peter that before the night is over, he will deny him three times, and then he will, rest- he will be restored and become one of the greats in his kingdom. In verses 35 through 38, Jesus prepares his apostles for their mission into a dangerous world. And if you remember from last week, we saw that there are two threads flowing through these four conversations that actually link them all together. Number one, each one of these conversations shows us the humiliation of Jesus, which he had to endure to bear the full weight of our sins upon himself. And in each of these conversations, we also see the royal authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, that He is in complete control of all things. Last week, we saw how He prophesied 
that one whose hand is on the table and dips the bread into the bowl will be the one who betrays him. And we learn from that that Jesus was in complete control of his death, everything, every aspect of it, which included Satan's involvement, Judas's involvement, Rome's involvement, the Jewish priest's involvement. He was in complete control. He was orchestrating everything so that the next day, just a few hours later, he would be betrayed, crucified, and buried, and then raised from the dead. We saw last week also in this prophecy the sovereignty of God and the free will of men. This betrayal was predetermined by God, predetermined from all eternity, and yet at the same time, the person who does the betraying, Scripture says, it would have been better that he had never been born because he was held accountable for the hideous sin of the betrayal of the Lord Jesus Christ. We focused our time last week on Judas the betrayer and what it was that Judas lacked, which was regeneration, that his heart was evil, that he had never been transformed by the grace of God. Oh, he pretended, he play-acted, he suppressed evil desires, he made himself do things that were right even though he didn't want to do them, but eventually... Satan entered into Judas's heart, and out came everything evil. All of his suppression, all the play acting was gone, and here the apostle proved himself to really be an apostate. Now that brings us to the second conversation that took place in our text, and that is the quarrel between the apostles. And remember, this isn't the first time that they argued about which one of them would be the greatest in Christ's kingdom. But I want you to look past the quarrel to what this tells us about Jesus. Jesus, first of all, solves the problem. He says that how the world views greatness and how I view greatness are two different things. And here you see Jesus acting as the final judge for all moral issues. You see him sovereignly setting the standards for life and for leadership and for reward in his kingdom. Where do we go to know how to define moral issues? What is good? What is wrong? What's bad? What is right? Of course, we go to the sovereign word of Jesus Christ. Now, this quarrel is tragic. I even hate to read it. Yet the Holy Spirit has put it in Scripture. It spoils everything. I mean, here is the last Passover. Here's the first Lord's Supper. Here is the last night Jesus would spend on earth before his death. Here he is teaching, bringing them, as it were, into the very inner sanctuary and teaching them some of the greatest truths that he had taught them in the, in the three years that they were with him. You see that in John 13, 14, 15, and 16. And you also see it in his great high priestly prayer in chapter 17. You see, Jesus as a man needed the support of his close friends. And this sacred and solemn atmosphere in the upper room is spoiled 
by the selfish ambition of the apostles on the eve of Jesus' crucifixion. Who is going to be the first chair? Who is going to be the greatest? Who is going to be the most honored in the kingdom of Christ? And how that argument must have broken Christ's heart. Now, why did they argue over this? And remember again, this isn't the first time. Why were they concerned about who would be the greatest, the most influential, the leader in the kingdom of God? Well, I think it was because of bad doctrine. As we have seen before, they had absorbed from their culture a wrong understanding of the kingdom of Christ. The prevalent Jewish attitude in the first century concerning the kingdom of Christ was that the Messiah is going to come and he is going to set up a powerful, militaristic, political kingdom and it's going to overturn Rome and liberate Israel from Roman domination and then set up an international peace for century after century under a Jewish culture. Well, the apostles had largely bought into that. Here Jesus is coming to the consummation of his life on earth. The apostles are starting to think about these things, and they're saying that in this big political kingdom, after we overthrow Rome, what do I get? Do I get Egypt? Do I get Asia? What do I rule over, Jesus? I mean, do I get first chair in your kingdom, or do I get second chair? So they're arguing about these things because of a false doctrine that they were holding to. Now, how does Jesus resolve this quarrel among the apostles? Well, he begins by contrasting Christian greatness with the world's idea of greatness. He is virtually saying, we don't define it in the same way. In my kingdom, we define completely different greatness and leadership and power. So how does the world define greatness? Whoever dominates is the most important. Who is ever able to get people to follow him and his opinion? Whoever gets the most votes, whoever dominates, he is the leader. He is the great man. And Jesus says, that's not the way we do it in the kingdom of God. In the kingdom of God, a Christian leader leads by serving. A person that is great in God's kingdom is someone who takes the position of a slave and tries to meet the needs of everyone else around him rather than having his own needs met. In the kingdom of God, it is service that is power. If you want to be an influential person in the kingdom of God and be a leader, quit worrying about power. Quit worrying about leadership and start serving. Be a servant. And Jesus here really confuses them. He says in verse 25, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who have authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Let him who is the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as the servant. And then he says in verse 27, for who is greater, the one who reclines at the table being served, or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? Sure, Jesus. Wrong. I am among you as the one who serves. 
Who is the greatest one in this room, apostles? It is I, Jesus. What have I been doing for you all my life? I've been waiting on you, serving you as you recline at the table. And what did I just do for you? Luke doesn't record this, but the other gospel writers do. Jesus, the leader, the king, the greatest of them all, just washed their feet to remove the hot dust and to cool them off so they could relax. Jesus is saying to them, my whole life has been a life of self-sacrificing service because that is the way life is among the true citizens of the kingdom of God. They are going to imitate the king. They're going to imitate the greatest leader of all, the most influential person in all of history, the greatest person that ever lived. Jesus was the greatest servant that ever lived. Matthew 10:45 says, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So I ask you before we go on, are you always trying to get people to serve you? Or are you always trying to serve other people? Think about it. You know, there was a time in which this culture was influenced more by Christianity than it is today. People took care of one another in sickness and in old age. They didn't say things like, that's what the state is for. Isn't that what the deacons are supposed to do? No. That is the way life is in the kingdom of God. We don't take as our model and our pattern the way the world does things. The world hates you, and it hates Christ. We are to take as our model how Jesus did things, and he said, in my kingdom, if you want to have a healthy influence on other people, serve them, wait on them, take them chicken noodle soup, vacuum their floors, but be their servants. And remember, Jesus never commands us to serve someone self-sacrificially without also promising to reward us graciously as we sacrificially serve other people. Remember, Jesus said to the rich ruler, sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. To his disciples, he said, truly I say to you, there was no one here who has left house or parents or brethren or wife or children for the kingdom of God's sake, who shall not receive much more in this present time and in the world to come everlasting life. So we learn a lot from this embarrassing moment, this tragic moment on the last Thursday that Jesus spent on earth. One of the last things he taught his disciples, if you are going to get anywhere in this world, if the kingdom of God is going to make any advance on this earth, if we are going to have any power over darkness, understand that power comes by self-sacrificing service to those in need. You see, the apostles' preoccupation with position and prestige was inappropriate for two reasons. First, that is the way heathen Americans behave. 
do you want to be have like heathen Americans? Preoccupied with power, ease, affluence, prestige, importance, self, and go to hell like the average heathen American? That's not the way Jesus does things. Being preoccupied with prestige and power and self is the opposite of the way Jesus lived, and he was the greatest of all. Seek you first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. And that is everything you need to survive in this world and be victorious for Christ. Turn now to verses 28 through 30. After he points out and resolves this argument, he says, And you are those who stood by me in my trials. And just as my Father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and you will sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. He had just rebuked them for their ambition. And now he tells his apostles how much he appreciates their faithfulness to him throughout the previous three years of living with him, particularly during difficult situations and difficult circumstances. He says, I'm going to graciously reward you for your faithfulness to me. And that reward includes authorizing them to have table fellowship with him, sweet fellowship and commune with, with him in the midst of this evil world. And secondly, he's going to give them the authority to rule in this world with the word of God. To rule over the 12 tribes of Israel was a covenantal expression that everyone understood, but no one took literally. They knew that it referred to the members of God's kingdom, the citizens of the kingdom of God, the church, and the Lord Jesus Christ. So he thanked them for their faithfulness to him. He said, I'm going to graciously reward your faithfulness, and I'm going to reward it by giving to you the privilege of enjoying fellowship with me every day of your life, and giving you authority to speak my word into this evil world so as to judge this world and to govern this world and to make a difference in this world. But notice how he says it. Verse 29. And just as my Father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and you will sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. In my kingdom... I'm going to give to you communion and authority. Now, in English, these words are not all that dramatic, but in the Greek, they are. And just as my Father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you fellowship and authority. Now, the word grant is actually translated better like this. And just as my Father has covenanted to me a kingdom... I covenant to you that you may have fellowship with me and have authority to rule and judge in this world. Because the word, the verb grant, beloved, is the verb to covenant. So Jesus is saying that God has entered into a covenant with me and given me a kingdom and has authorized me to bless you and save you. 
And just as God has entered into a covenant with me, giving me a kingdom, I am entering into a covenant with you, and I'm going to give you fellowship with me and the authority to use my word to govern and make a difference in this world. Now, when do you suppose that God made a covenant with Jesus to give him this kingdom? Maybe just a few hours before. Maybe he had made it with him a few years before. When do you actually think God the Father made a covenant with God the Son that he would have a kingdom and that in that kingdom people would fellowship with him and have the power of his word to make a difference in this life? It was before time began. Now, we don't have a lot of time to talk about it today. But there are all kinds of verses in the Bible that speak about what we call a covenant of redemption. A covenant of redemption that the three persons of the Trinity made with each other before the world even began. And in that covenant, the three persons of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, determined there would be such a thing as salvation and that they would not let everyone go on to hell for their sins, even though they deserve to. They determined that there would be such a thing as salvation. They determined how that salvation would take place, and they determined who they would save and who they would not. And each of the three persons determined what he would do to bring that salvation to pass. God the Father agreed that he would send God the Son incarnate for sinners and then call sinners out of darkness into light. God the Son agreed he would take upon himself human flesh and do everything that was necessary in his life, death, and resurrection to accomplish that salvation. God the Holy Spirit agreed that he would do whatever it took to draw all God's people to himself, that they might be saved through all eternity. And then God the Father said to God the Son, you accomplish this perfectly, and I'm going to give you a kingdom that will supersede all of the kingdoms, that will overcome all opposition, that will include everything in the whole universe, and will last forever. Now, all of that can certainly be documented in the Bible. And that was the kind of kingdom, that covenant that God made in the Trinity before the world began. You see, God didn't wait for you and me to take the first step toward him. He took the first step toward us before time even began. He didn't wait until we started loving him before he started loving us. He loved us from all eternity, beloved. And in this covenant, you have three equal parties. Now, in any covenant that God makes with us, there is not even two equal parties. There is, of course, the superior party, and there is an inferior party. God is, of course, the superior party, and we're the inferior party. But in this covenant that God made with himself, there are three equal parties. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And Jesus says here, just as my Father has granted me a kingdom. What does that sound like to you? He's here claiming to be God. He is saying, I was part of this covenant bond in the Trinity before time began. 
I agreed with the Father and the Holy Spirit to do whatever needed to be done to save sinners. And the Father said to the Son, do that, and I'll give you a kingdom that shall last throughout all eternity. He is claiming here to be God. And he says, now rooted in that covenant that God had made with himself in the Trinity before time began, I'm making a covenant of grace with you. Because apostles, it's got to be a covenant of grace if I'm going to give table fellowship and authority to you to rule by my words. It's going to have to be of grace because you have just shown to me that you don't deserve it. By arguing about who's going to have first chair in my kingdom, you just showed me that any covenant I make with you has got to be of undeserved mercy and of unmerited grace. Well, this has been Abounding Grace with Pastor Gary Wagner from Reformed Heritage Church in San Jose. As we have closed out our time together today, I would remind you that our desire is to know how this program encourages you in Christ. Now, there are a couple of three ways that you can contact us to provide us with this information. And again, it would really encourage us a great deal if you'd take a moment and let us know how the program is encouraging you in your walk and relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's how to contact us. Phone number is 408 408- Eight six six five six zero seven. That's four zero eight eight six six five six zero seven. Our website, where you can drop us an email and even learn a bit more about us, is reformedheritage.org. And then, of course, you can write to us at PMB. That stands for Post Mailbox Number four zero two fourteen eighty four Pollard Road, Los Gatos, California. The zip code is nine five zero three two. Now, there is another way you can contact us, and this would be the best of all, especially if you're not involved in a church at this time. Plan on visiting. Let us uh, fellowship face-to-face, as it were. We meet at Lone Hill Church, 2 in the afternoon on Sundays at 5055 Lone Hill Road in Los Gatos. Directions can be found at our website, reformedheritage.org, or by calling 408-866-5607. By the way, copies of the broadcast are just $5. Mention today's date when you contact us, and we'll get a CD out to you right away. Thank you for joining us today. Until next time, God bless. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.